I'm Karen Lewis, and welcome to Recovery Bites, a show that gets real about recovery, where we welcome voices in the field and voices of experience. Join me for candid interviews with experts in eating disorder and mental health recovery. Listeners can look forward to new perspectives, meaningful conversations, diverse connections, and compelling personal narratives that make a powerful difference in how we live. Episodes focus on life beyond recovery, the good and the not so good, the successes and the challenges, and the authentic accounts of recovered lives. Not their whole story, just bites. All right, everyone, here we go. This is a really interesting interview. I'll tell you why. It's for two reasons. The main one, it's with Brianna Campos. And she has so much to say. It is amazing. The other reason why it's interesting is I was unable to do this recording in my typical home closet, which yes, I don't know if you're all aware of this, but all interviews are done in my closet due to the sound. Unfortunately, I was not able to do this from home, so I am in a different closet, or I was in a different closet, and you will definitely see the difference or hear the difference in sound quality, and my closet is a lot better. The lesson to be learned, though, the exercise we're going to do today is it's okay. It's more than okay. Not everything has to be perfect. The interview was wonderful. That's what matters. I want you to hear what Brianna has to say. That's what matters. I apologize in advance that the quality from my end is not up to par, but Brianna sounds great and that's what's important. I all want you to hear her message. Okay, here we go. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Recovery Bites. I cannot tell you how honored I am to be sitting here with Bree Campost, who is our guest for today. Bree, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me here. I'm I'm so excited to have you here. I'm excited for you to share your message, for us to, to talk and have great dialogue. Before we get there, Bree. Can you tell the listeners about yourself, about your Instagram, all the wonderful things that you're doing? Sure. So I have an Instagram, which is Body Image with Brie. And I I just want to keep the conversation going on body image as someone who worked clinically as an eating disorder therapist in an eating disorder center, and then also living life in a large body. I feel like sometimes we pass the buck when it comes to talking about body image. And so I've picked up the mantle and I'm running with it. I think that's fantastic. I don't know what is making me automatically go to this question. So this is just the way my mind works. I've also worked in residential programs for years and years and years. And the mantra that all clients and therapists always say is body image is the last to go. 
What are your thoughts about that? And how do you think that affects somebody's motivation for treatment? Amazing question. And my question back to you is, am I allowed to curse? (laughs) You most certainly are, my darling. Cursing is always welcome. That's bullshit. Thank you. It's such, it's such bullshit. It's such bullshit because we're looking at body image as this separate entity when really what we have to do is look at body image, our relationship to food and our relationship to movement as three separate relationships that intersect. And if we just keep putting body image off to the side, and we're not looking at, well, how does how does my food and changing my food impact my body image? How does my movement impact my body image? We're never going to get very far. Don't you think it's also, to some degree, giving a message that there should be, and I hate using the word should, but that it's almost like we're expected to have poor body image. Like I I can't, I wish I could articulate it a little bit better what I'm trying to say, but it sort of says like, oh, it's the last thing to go. It's almost like a, like a sidebar and something like, oh, you just have to deal with it. And, and, and I think it's an enormous part of the recovery process. I don't know if you have any thoughts about that. I, I have two. So one, I think that you have to have incredible privilege to be able to say that. And I was just talking to a colleague this morning of that when you think that body image and body positivity is just about loving your body or being neutral with your body means you don't have accessibility issues, which means you can walk into most stores and buy clothes that you can sit in public spaces and not feel like this space wasn't made for me. So that's first of all. And then uh, my, I love her. I want to repeat that. Lizzo actually said this wonderful quote on a late night show. And she said something like body negativity is the norm. So that when people are body positive, it is this unheard of thing. Mm. How would you yourself define body positive? Like there are so, there's so much language going on lately, body positivity, body neutrality, things, whatever. How would you even define body positivity? Sure. I think, you know, in its origination, body positivity was a social justice movement. It was about the most marginalized bodies so that there would be visibility and acceptance of them. Uh, I know a prior guest of yours, Sonia Renee Taylor, I absolutely love her work on that your body is not an apology. And she uses this, this framework of the game is rigged, right? This is, there's a ladder construct that is rigged and there's only two choices, climbing the ladder and knowing you're going to lose, you're never going to be able to catch up or not climbing the ladder at all. And so I think we have co-opted body positivity in this light of it's just about loving your body when in actuality, body image is not about liking your body at all. That's body satisfaction, which is not an indication of body image. Body image is how you see yourself, how that makes you feel and the thoughts and beliefs connected to what you're how you perceive yourself and how you think others are going to perceive you. 
I think where I want to go with this is I listened to you on another podcast and you had made a really, really powerful statement, which is body positivity in our culture. And by the way, I'm paraphrasing is basically based on loving your body and similar to what you're saying, which is, and you use this great example, which is like, do you love your children all the time? No. Do you love your partners all the time? Your friends? No, but there's, you love them unconditionally. And that's what you're saying is from what I, what I took from it, a healthy body image concept. Did I, did I say that incorrectly? Not at all. Not at all. And and I'll take it a step further is I had, I had just used an analogy recently where my, my mom's dog was a nasty dog. I did not like the dog. It was kind of mean, snippy, a little chihuahua, but I still treated the dog with respect. I still would take the dog out and take care of it. And I didn't neglect it. And the difference is, right, when we are uncomfortable or frustrated or we don't like our bodies, we have a proclivity to avoid it. Now, that's trauma, right, is it probably has not been safe to be in our body and to take care of our body. But I'm arguing that love is not a condition in being respectful to your body. I also want to say that that is a really, really beautiful example and and a powerful example. That's exactly it. We still take care of the dog. We still respect the dog. We still let them have their needs met. We still, you know, hold the dog. And so it's, it's a great way for you to put this. Let me ask how your, you know, your Instagram page came up. How did all of this get started for you? So I always say that my page started on accident. Um, I'm an, I say I'm an accidental entrepreneur because I just wanted to make a page to talk about body positivity from what I was learning when I was learning it first, which is almost about three years ago. And so I had worked in an eating disorder center. I was working with women and girls who are in recovery. And I was learning everything that I could about body image because exactly the same trope that you were told, body image is the last step to come. And so I would see this material and I would be like, I wouldn't even do this crap. Like, oh, you feel bad? Say three nice things about yourself. I'm like, no, I'm not doing that. So I would never make the the women in my group do this. And I remember one day, this, this woman looked at me and she goes, Brie, you know, I love you, but listen, you got to give me something tangible because we, we have to still keep eating. We still have to show up in our lives. So to wait for it to come is not working for us. And I was like, she's not wrong. And when you try to find academic resources and information, it's scarce. There is not a lot of information. So I became my own researcher and I started trying to compile things. And what it forced me to do was also challenge my own body image beliefs and my own body image ideals. And I would say really sort of the the catalyst that changed everything for me was when I learned about health at every size, which was on accident. I had a friend recommend the podcast uh, Food Psych with Chrissy Harrison. And I was like, 
you know, whatever, what's a, you know, another skinny blonde person going to say to me or brunette. And I listened to the episode. And for the first time I was like, wait, this is exactly what I think. And I believe I didn't even know there was a construct or a name for this. And it just, oh man, I just dove headfirst into all of the information, bought all of the books, was self-teaching and was trying to find people who looked like me talking about it. And I didn't see a lot of people. So I thought, well, you know, I don't want my friends to be annoyed that all I'm doing is talking about health and every size and intuitive eating. So I made a page and I, I've never expected anything to come from it that has. What is it? Do you remember that in that episode where you were just like, oh my God, this, there's finally words to this. Can you share with the listeners? Cause I bet they would love to hear that. Yeah. So I listened to the episode where she interviewed Judith Matz, who is a, I believe, a, a therapist as well. And I was like, again, right, like, am I going to learn anything new on this podcast? And she was talking about emotional eating. And my entire life, because I've lived in a large body, I have been assumed to be an overeater. And when I would tell professionals and doctors and other people, I don't overeat. I don't, I don't know why I live in a large body, but I do, but I'm not an uh, overeater, an emotional eater. And so when Judith and, and Christy were talking about how emotional eating, one is a coping skill, but two, that there are large body people who don't overeat. And we have to believe them when they say that. I was like, oh, they're talking about me. <laughs> I felt seen. I felt seen for the first time in my life. Which that is a powerful feeling to actually say to yourself, like, this is, this is it. Like I'm hearing it. I'm hearing it on a podcast. I'm hearing somebody say, don't tell me what I do or don't do with my body. I am the author of this body. I know exactly what I'm doing and hear me say, I am not overeating or emotional eating or anything like that. So I don't even know. I mean, you seemed very happy when I was, was saying things like that. So go ahead. What are your thoughts? Well, my, my thought was my entire life, I have been gaslit by society by professionals. Well, you wouldn't be in a large body if you weren't eating and if you were just exercise. And I know how hard I worked to be in a smaller body. I know how I know how hard I work at most things. So I knew I was like there's nothing I can it does not work. There's something wrong with me. And to find out no, actually there's nothing wrong with you. There's nothing wrong with you. Actually, you're the norm. <laughs> that Bodies have diversity. Bodies come in different sizes. And one of the first videos I think that I saw that like made my mind explode was Poodle Science. I knew you were going to say that. I knew it. I was sitting here and I was like, Poodle Science, Poodle Science. Go ahead. Tell listeners about it because it's phenomenal. So Poodle Science, I, I don't know if you remember who it's. Who I it's, think it's Deb Burgard. It is Deb Burgard. And she, they do this video of how everyone assumes that everyone is supposed to be a poodle. And so when in actuality, right, 
there are so many different kinds of dogs and types of dogs. There are big dogs, there are small dogs, their, their sizes are for different reasons to survive, you know, different skill sets or different things. And so to say that everyone's a poodle and they call it poodle science is harmful to everyone. And that idea of, wow, we can have people who live in different bodies and they can have the same level of health. Now, I feel like the world is catching up to that and they're realizing that, um, but there is still this internalized fat phobia of, but I don't wanna be fat. And that's where I find people get stuck. It's where I got stuck is, okay, now I know that I'm not crazy. I know that I'm not making this up, that I was right all along, but why is it still hard for me to even identify as being fat. And it's because of the fat phobia in this world. It's because this world is not made for people of my body size. But instead of changing my body, I wanna change the culture. Okay, by the way, I think we just got the name of, the, of this episode. Instead of changing my body, I wanna change the culture. That is that is it. And, and we don't understand that or people don't understand. And that's why eating disorders are rampant. That's also why the diet industry, oh my God, they prey on the vulnerabilities of this cultural norm that if somebody doesn't fit in, what can I do? What can I do? I got to figure something out, which by the way, you and I both know diets don't work. Only 5% of diets work. And we live in a culture where the diet industry is on top and they're telling people, you can do it, you can do it, you can do it when there's a 5% chance of that happening. And so then we blame the person who can't diet. We judge the person who can't do it. The person who's tried it feels like the failure and usually ends up gaining more weight in the process. So I, I don't know if you have any thoughts about that. Yeah, I, and I, I think too, one of the biggest places that I think people hide their body hatred is under the guise of health. But what about my health? Brie, what about my health? <laughs> now I'm, I'm a little salty. And so what about it? <laughs> what is your definition of health? If your definition of health is the absence of illness, that's a really high bar to reach. If your definition of health is that you're, you know, eating fruits and vegetables and that you're exercising daily, sure, that could be a measure of health, but it's also very ableist and very privileged to have that belief system of this is what defines health. For me now, health is holistic and in a true sense of how's my mental health? How's my emotional health? How's my relational health? How's my health with my body? How am I connecting to my body? What discomfort am I connecting to my body? Is there discomfort? And am I able to assess the needs that are coming up for my body? And so I think that when, when we put this fear of people of, but if you're fat, you're going to be unhealthy. It's a really good motivator. And, and, and I have a, a friend who was on my podcast and she said, shame is a powerful motivator, but it produces bad fruit. So if you think about, uh, that was Amanda Beck, uh, your body is good. And she said, right, that, yeah, people, you think about diets, shame is a great motivator, 
but for how long? How long does that last? Whereas finding neutrality, not arriving there, but being able to be neutral with your body, that your body does not consume your life, that you are not constantly worried about your health because of your body size. I, I think the other detriment to society is the quote unquote new guise of health and wellness. Because if you look at diet culture now, it is now defined as health and wellness. And so you see like, why would you not want to strive for health and wellness? I'm not dieting quote unquote. That I am, and by the way, marketers are brilliant for the way they manipulate the, the, what, what we define as, or how they, how they deliver these messages to us. It's, it's unbelievable. Go ahead. Were you going to say something? I, I, I just agree. And, and it's like, there is, it's a $72 billion industry. And I, I just recently posted about this too. And it, it shocked a lot of people that 67% of women in the United States wear at least a size 1X. 67%. I was just going to say, can you say that one more time? Because that is a message that needs to be heard. Yeah. Plunkett, Plunkett Research in 2012 did a study And it found that 67% of women in the United States wear a size 1X. And 1X is considered plus size, not standard, not found in every store. My question to the world, right, is why is that happening? Who profits off of that? The diet industry. I mean, it's, yeah. it's, it is unbelievable. And you also realize that we are conditioned to judge ourselves or base ourselves around our sizes and the way we look in our clothes and things like that. And we don't, it's, it's hard, I think, for people to listen to that statistic because they're still so hyper-focused on what they are not quote unquote, achieving what they are not doing, how they are not looking. So they're like, yeah, yeah, that's a great statistic. But I want, but I'm so focused in on the few that by the way, some people have naturally thin bodies that some people don't like, we never know how somebody's body, like just like how you weren't emotionally eating. We, we just never know by somebody's body type, how they got that body type, if that makes sense. I, I feel like I'm saying the word a lot. No, it makes absolute sense. And it's just like, I did nothing to to earn my height. I, like it's partly my genetics and, you know, uh, I, I don't know why I am short, but there isn't the same stigma around being short as there is being in a larger body. Do you, look, let me, let me back up. What are you noticing is a common theme, if there is, that people are reaching out to you for your Instagram posts, trying to get in touch with you? Is there a theme? A little, little bit of that. So I would say one of the biggest themes that I see for people is I don't want to diet anymore. I'm done with dieting, but I don't think I'll ever be able to make peace with this body that I'm in. And I think that a lot of 
professionals in this field. We take the crumbs and commentaries of other people and then we repeat that. And then now our clients are repeating it and they have actually no idea what it means, right? Because we've moved away from body love to, we've moved away from body love to body peace or body respect or body kindness or, right? There's just all of these terms. And what I'd encourage you to do is I want you to think about being in relationship with your body. I had my own podcast guest, uh, Ivy Felicia. She's a body relationship coach. And we, we said this thing of like, imagine that you are in a relationship where you don't really like the other person. You don't really speak kindly to them. You kind of avoid them all the time, but you interact with them when you are going to the doctors, when you're naked or when you're being intimate, it would be a hella awkward relationship. Like nobody would sign up for that. That is the relationship many of us have with our bodies because we don't pay attention to our bodies until we feel discomfort and we speak negatively to ourselves and we speak down to ourselves. That is not a healthy relationship. And so I'm not saying you have to love it, but can you learn to respect it, speak kindly to it? And what comes up for my clients is body grief, is the part where they are sad about what they will miss out on by saying goodbye to their dream body. And it was something I had to do. And using the concept of grief, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, the five stages of grief, denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and the last stage is acceptance. Acceptance isn't like, yay, this happened. This is what happened. You cannot get to acceptance until you have gone through the depression, until you acknowledge that the loss exists and that there is a cost in this process that when you say you you cannot have food freedom and manipulate your body size, you can't have both. So either you want this path of no dieting, anti-dieting, food freedom, body liberation, or you want to manipulate your body size. And I can't tell you what's right for you. I can tell you what's right for me. I can tell you what I think uh, <laughs> causes rampant eating disorders in our culture. But I, at the end of the day, it has to be each person's individual journey. And I love sitting with people in what I call the suck of the worst part about accepting the reality of where they are with their bodies. How do you help them through that? Like, is it, is it, by the way, a lot of times when, when there's, when people are in the suck, I, I validate it. I sit with them. I mean, there, after I asked you, like, how do you, how do you work with that? I thought there's no magic cure, but is there anything in particular that you do? You're right. There's no, there's no magic. And, and what I'll give you for reference is imagine the last time you went to a wake or somebody died. There are no words that takes away loss and pain. There is only validation and community of I'm going to sit here in your suck with you. We're going to do it together. And your pain isn't too big for me. That I think is one of the most important things that 
I find when I'm working with clients, I say to them, we can hold it in here. I can hold it. Just like you said, your pain is not too big for me. I can hold it. And I think there is a fear that it's too much emotion to to give to somebody. And by the way, they're not giving it to us. They're actually inviting us into it. Right? Exactly. Yeah. I it's a, it's an invitation if you allow me to sit in that place with you. Go ahead, you look like you're going to say something. No, I that's it's just beautiful and I I you know, uh, in full transparency, the reason I understand body grief is because I have experienced grief in my real life. My older brother passed away almost 10 years ago. And I remember people sitting with me being like I just want to say something that's going to make this better. And I would look at them and be like, unless you can bring him back, nothing you say is going to make this better. So you just sitting here with me, not trying to fix it, not trying to silver line it or make it better is the the best thing you can do for me right now. And I know my own fear was... I didn't know how far out the grief would go. My fear was if I allow this sadness in, I'm going to get stuck. I'm going to be lost at sea. I'm going to go to the outer edges of it and I'm going to just fall off the cliff. And it sucks. I would unlearn everything if I could to have my brother back. But because I can't, I have found how resilient I am. And that the underbelly of the beast of grief was only as dark as it was because I've never been there before. And you do pop out the other side. And just as you said, I would unlearn everything to bring my brother back. What you're also saying is, is this is the definition of acceptance. I'm not saying I accept it and it's great. I'm not saying I accept it and this is, I accept the depth of the sadness, the depth of the grief, and I am still moving forward. I am still, I accept there is no altering this. Whether it's- Bring it back to, to body image, right? There was a number in my mind that I was like, I can't hit that number. If I'm that number- I just, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't weigh myself anymore, but I'm pretty sure I am much bigger than that number now. And what has happened, right? Like the fall, the floor didn't fall out from underneath me. I can still get up every day and live my best life because when grief shows itself, I acknowledge her presence. I invite her in. I let it suck. And eventually she leaves just like every other emotion. You know, I'm sitting here and I'm thinking, and and this is coming from somebody who I myself had an eating disorder for many years. So I'm not sitting here being like, this is barbaric. Why did this ever happen? But if you really stop and listen to the words that you and I are, are sharing right now, do you realize how inhumane and barbaric it is to say you have to go through grief of accepting your body or that you're not going to be a particular, like, I, I, 
I hear it all the time, but for some reason, I'm having a different experience with it right now. That the fact that we lost touch with heart self, heart self of, of ourself and of others, of ritual, of community, of family, that we are on the other end of the spectrum and talking about having to grieve the loss of an idea of a body is unbelievable. It's devastating that it's not, the norm isn't, I love my body and my body is good. And I imagine maybe when we were kids, maybe there, for for some of us, there was, but there's an age at which that switches. And, and this is what I've learned in my own work is that from, from my understanding of trauma work, my friend Andrea Glick uh, says this, she says, we were born dysregulated and it is up to our parents to teach us to regulate. So if our parents have not done body image work, how can they teach us how to love and be respectful and kind to our bodies? So I do think that the work we're doing now is going to impact the future and impact the generations to come. Because seeing all of these plus size models, seeing people represented in TV who look like me, I don't know what that would have done for self-efficacy of my young child mind of, oh, she's in a big body. There's, there's something else that I, I want to go back to, and I, I don't mean to stray so much, but when we were talking about, and this goes to what's being modeled to us, whether it's from our parents or from our friends, when we talk about going to somebody like a therapist that says, I can hold it, we're also holding it from a non-judgmental stance, having hopefully, and I'm saying hopefully, you know, in, in a way that it's important to say it like that. Therapists have done their own body image work and have their own healthy relationship with their body. So when we hold it, we hold it unconditionally. Unfortunately, there's people that either hold it in all the time and don't even share it with their therapist or they share it with the world because their boundaries aren't, aren't strong enough. And now they're sharing it with people that are still stuck in the diet culture. So they're not getting the non-judgmental support that they need. They're still actually getting diet advice. That was actually something that I, I realized in my, my cognitive dissonance of when I would tell somebody I'm feeling uncomfortable in my body, that was my bid for connection. I said, I just want somebody to be like, oh my God, me too. And every time, almost without fail, it would be like, well, what are you eating? Or, you know, maybe we could try moving. And this, this is at a time when I was working in the eating disorder clinic. And I would be like, okay, so what is considered disordered in their body is being encouraged in my body. And so it really of drawing this dissonance of like, we have to do something different. If I'm saying I'm uncomfortable, can we stay with the discomfort rather than can we fix it? Yes. And when we go to the way of quote unquote fixing it, we are actually confirming that there's something wrong with the body. 
So we're, we're, in, you know, we're helping people internalize that negative sense of self. Like, well, what if you do this or what, as opposed to saying, just like you said, let's sit with it. What's it telling us? Maybe what it's telling us is that society is really toxic and we're tired. What I would say for most people is that their fear of existing in a fat body means that they're going to miss out on belonging. But what we're not trying to achieve is belonging. We're trying to fit in. And Brene Brown has a quote about that, that fitting in is a hollow substitute for belonging and that belonging is belonging to yourself first. Absolutely beautiful. And we, we have to find it within ourselves. And so when we keep trying to quote unquote, going along with Brene Brown's fitting in, we're getting more and more hollow. We're getting farther and farther and farther away from what we actually are looking for, which is a sense of self. Go ahead. Well, I was thinking, you know, if somebody's listening to this and they're like, I, I hear what you're saying, but I know, I know for a fact that I will feel better or more confident in a smaller body. My question to you would be, how long can you sustain that? Because, right, I, I had weight loss surgery because I hated my body so much. I knew all of the right things to say. I knew to say, oh, this is about my health. And I think I had convinced myself it was about my health too. And for a little bit, it felt good. It felt like, yes, right? I have this control. People are complimenting me. This is great. And then the good feeling stopped. And I was left with this utter shame of, I'm plateauing in my weight loss, even though that's what it was supposed to do. I didn't know that. And I'm hungry, <laughs> but I can't eat. All my cues are off. It was not sustainable. So it worked for how long it was supposed to. And this is not to shame anyone who's getting surgery or has had surgery. I always say there's a seat at the table for you. I am sitting here thinking, we need to expand on this if you're okay with it. And, and, and I want to ask your permission to expand on before weight loss surgery and after. And the reason why I just got the most beautiful email from somebody who listens to the podcast. And they said, do you ever talk about bariatric surgery? Do you ever talk about the before and the after? Because I'm in the aftermath and I'm really uncomfortable. And so Brie, is there anything you can say more than what you did about the process? I mean, absolutely. Uh, I I got surgery when I was 19. I don't know if you know any 19-year-olds, but like, that's a really confusing time. You're like kind of an adult, but not really. And I... I know I said it for all the right reasons and I'm far fatter now than I was when I got the surgery. Um, but it, it was something that was celebrated by my family. It was a, you know, a decision for my health. And I just kept like, it was, it was like the newest diet for me. It was like, okay, right. I'm getting excited. And like, you know, this is going to change everything. This is going to change everything. And it didn't, if anything, it just 
made me more raw and more exposed, I would say. Like I just felt like, oh, this is such a public struggle because I would have complications. Food would get stuck. I had the lap band surgery. And so um, there were just things that I was not prepared for. And my doctor didn't prepare me for it. I had gone in with a bunch of like questions and fears and concerns, and he dismissed all of them and didn't even give me the accurate information. And I had a lot of shame about doing it because then people assume, oh, that's the quote unquote easy way out. And let me tell you, there is no easy way. If you are somebody who's made a decision to have weight loss surgery or you've had weight loss surgery, you don't come to that lightly. That's a, it's a tough place to get to. And it's so encouraged by the doctors, which we would probably need a whole other podcast episode to talk about. But in the after, I remember thinking, I thought it was like, I thought it was supposed to feel different. Like I thought it was going to be like a light switch. And I was just going to be like, here I am. I'm fabulous. I'm wonderful. I actually went into a pretty severe depression after, after the surgery. And I didn't know how to cope with my feelings and just felt really, and, and not even because I used to emotionally eat, I just had never felt all of these emotions before and I didn't know what to do with them. And I was in therapy trying to process through it. And I would say finding some close friends who were in larger bodies was helpful. Um, and well, like one of my best friends in, in particular, but then there was this aftershame of after, you know, a couple of years of starting to regain weight and being like, oh no, I'm like, I'm failing. Like this is, I did the ultimate test and I have now failed. When in actuality, that was normal. It was normal for me to regain weight. Actually, most surgeries, I don't have that information accessible, but I know there's a lot of research on regaining weight. And a friend of mine, if, if this podcast listener is listening, my friend, Caitlin Anderley, her Instagram handle is reframe your story. She talks all about her bariatric surgery and provides support to people um, who have who have gone through that. And I would say a lot of my body grievers, not a lot, but a good handful of them are people who've had the weight loss surgery and are like, but now what? Now, now what? It's hard. It's hard no matter what, what point of the journey you are in that. Um, I actually made the decision to have the band removed. And that, again, was a whole process in and of itself of the doctor trying to convince me to do another surgery. And I was not health at every size yet. And I said, no, <laughs> I'm not doing another surgery. Why would I do another surgery when I'm, if I'm, if I'm not eating too much, if I know that I'm not quote unquote eating too much, what is a surgery going to do? And they can't answer that. They, they answer it in their white coat medical way, but she tried, my doctor tried several times to get me to change my mind of, you know, like, okay, well, when we go back in and take the band out, there's something that we can do if you're, if you plan on doing it. I said, do I need to decide now? She was like, kind of, I said, if I need to decide now, the answer is no. Again, what that is saying is that all problems lead back to weight. This, I think, and please hear me, I do not want to speak for you, but when you said you were depressed after, that was grief, thinking that this is going to be the magic thing, that 
makes everything in my life all better. And what a disappointment, right, Brie? Go ahead, Brie. A hundred percent. What I would say is it was the ultimate bargain in the stages of grief. It was like, but I can still fix this. And when I didn't, I was grieved. I was like, it didn't work. And so when people tell me, I think I need to do one more diet, I know that feeling. I know that feeling well. But it's it's gonna it's gonna treat you the same way it did the last time. It'll work for a little bit, then it'll stop, and then you're gonna feel like the failure rather than it's not supposed to work. Like Sonia Renee Taylor says, it's a rigged game. Well, this is why people say, I'm on my 50th diet. Well, when are you going to understand that it's not you, it's the diet? And again, we, we do live in a culture that assumes that if you look a certain way, your life is a certain way. And I have to imagine, Brie, with what your experience was, that your life didn't change to that dreamlike that you had anticipated from the surgery. So again, what an incredible disappointment. And, and if we're going to stay on this topic of grief, uh, David Kessler worked very closely with Elizabeth Kubler-Ross and they worked to add a stage in called finding meaning. And I, I'm even getting emotional thinking about it now, but in my largest body, I am the most confident. I am the most emotionally healthy all of the things that I wanted to feel that I thought I needed thinness in order to achieve, I have now. And so for me, I have found meaning in my grief because I get to help other people with theirs. This is why I say to people or to my clients, I didn't find everything I thought the eating disorder was going to provide for me until I let go of the eating disorder. I did not find confidence in self. I did not find safety and intimacy. I did not find independence and maturity as something to look forward to. I, I didn't find, I didn't find any of that. And, and it's, it, it is, it is, it is grief when you realize I have been doing this for years, believing it is going to be the answer. And, and you have grief when you finally get to a place where you're like, I've, and by the way, I would never say I wasted years. It was part of my life, part of my experience, part of a huge part of who I am today, why I am so feeling and so sensitive and love what I do. I would never trade it, but there is grief when you look back and you say, I did miss out on a lot. I did lose a lot of connections, a lot of experiences, a lot of other sad situations, which were important to experience as well for developmental growth. I feel the same way. And, and, and when making peace with my body, that was something I had to grieve. And, and I actually did that really through the anger of like, I feel like I've been lied to my whole life. Like, I feel like my my young adulthood could have been so fun if I wasn't so worried about how my body looked. The truth is, is that 
even people who weren't in a larger body probably also felt that way too. And so we were all, we were all on the same, on the same wavelength. And so this is why it is so important for me to share this message because I always, I always think of little Brie and I think of if she had a fat, positive role model, would that have changed the trajectory of how she saw herself? I, it's so funny. I used to hate doing, I don't know if you call it child work or inner child work. Inner child work. I, I used to be like, oh God, talking to my younger self. And I, I think it's because I still had some shame and judgment and embarrassment about my younger self. Mm. Brie, I can picture myself now at, you know, I was like eight years old or six years old. And, and, you know, listeners have heard me say this before, sitting on the side of a swimming pool, hoisting myself up because I didn't want my thighs to spread out on the concrete. I would love to go back and hug that little part of me, that little self and say, no, I don't even, I, I, I don't even know what I would say. I would just say, stop, you're beautiful. Don't do this. It's your body. We all have a right to be here in whatever body. There's no right or wrong way. And I loved doing inner child work now. And there are times when I will go back to other parts of my life and say, I'm so sorry I didn't take care of you back then. Well, what I was going to say is that I, I too, like would roll my eyes with inner child work. I would roll my eyes with inner child work. And I was like, why does this make me so uncomfortable? And I realized because in order to do inner child work, I also have to channel my reparenting voice. And I have to be the adult that that inner child needed. And that is uncomfortable. And even, even to start, I was like, I can't, I can't even do this to me. So I think about somebody that I know. I think about my niece and how fiercely I would advocate for her and how much I love her and how much her love, like my love for her does not need to be earned or deserved. It just is. And if that little person deserves love, so did little me. Yeah, 100%. And I do often say that to clients. If they can't look at their younger self, I say, I want you to just any 11-year-old, would you tell them to throw up their food? Would you tell them that until they lose a little bit of weight, they're not going to be in the popular crowd. And the ultimate goal is to be in the popular crowd. Because do you see what I'm saying? Like all these things that we thought were, were what were going to make us were external identifiers. And they were unreachable because we make them up in our minds to be something that they're not. Brie, I'm 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 really sad. We're we're getting close to the end of the podcast. I am wondering, first of all, is there anything that I didn't ask you that you would like to share with listeners? And don't forget, before you go, there is a final question. So has nothing to do with body image or eating disorders, but is there anything that you'd like to say? 
I mean, I, I think we covered a lot. Um, if I could leave listeners with anything, it would be that it is going to be hard to do this alone. And my, there's no, there's no course or self-study or book that you can read that will give you the same thing that a community can give you. So if you can find community, even if it's just one or two friends, even if it's internet friends that you are all, you know, trolling the same or not trolling, but you're, you're following the same, you know, person or joining a community, we are creating communities because that is the piece that I think will be the antithesis of the grieving alone. And to end with an Elizabeth Kubler-Ross quote, she says that grief shared is grief abated. It is beautiful. I also want to say by finding community and not going through it alone, that also is the antithesis of living in an eating disorder. Whatever the eating disorder or shame is, that thrives and lives in isolation. So the more we take chances to connect with other, as opposed to our negative sense of self or eating disorder behaviors, we're that much closer every day. Brie, this has been really wonderful. I I do, I, I have to ask you one more question. It's nothing about eating disorders. You know, you said you were salty. So I, I think you're gonna you're gonna like this question. My question for you is if someone were to write about you on a bathroom stall, what would it say? Oh my goodness. Uh <laughs> If someone were to write about me in a bathroom stall, they'd probably say something like, something like she's sweet, but she's psycho. (laughs) I love it. And I feel like I could have that applied to me as well. So that's fantastic. Or maybe she's psycho, but she's sweet. (laughs) Call for a good time. (laughs) I always say, I always say, um, I, I know that I'm a little high maintenance, but I maintain myself. <laughs> there it is. There it is. Bree. again, I can't thank you enough for being a guest on the show. Thank you. I have been so honored to have this conversation with you. Thank you for having me. Fantastic. Well, I, something tells me I'm going to ask you to come back in the future. So there's always growth happening in our fields. So absolutely. I'd be honored to. Oh, Bree, that would be wonderful. All right, everyone, that does it for another episode of Recovery Bites. I look forward to speaking with each and every one of you next week. Take care and stay safe. It's a wrap for this week's episode of Recovery Bites, real talk with recovered professionals. And I thank each and every one of you for tuning in with me. You can view more from today's episode, including guest information and excerpts by visiting www.karenlewisedc.com forward slash podcast. You can subscribe to future shows by searching Recovery Bites on Apple Podcast, Spotify, and Google Podcast. All right, everybody. 
Be well, and thanks for listening to my Bite for the Week.